The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion and the first in a series of programs, Love God, Live Truth, the Torah, joined by C.L. Mitchell and John Corr. Discovering the authorship of the early chapters of the Old Testament. Welcome today to In Discussion. I am absolutely delighted to join today our permanent residents, C.L. Mitchell and John Corr, for this first in the series of Love God, Live Truth the Torah. Today's program examines the authorship of the Torah. Gentlemen, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Uh, which of you gentlemen would like to uh, start with uh, a very brief introduction to this long-term series and then perhaps uh, illustrate the nature of the, uh, of the subject today? Uh, I'll take on that task. Uh, our goal in this series again is to give an academic as well as practical overview uh, of the Bible. We're going to start of course in the beginning uh, not only with Genesis but in the framework of the Torah that is the first five books of the Bible Genesis through Deuteronomy and in so doing our goal today is to establish some level of familiarity with the background of the book. In order to begin that, of course, we will begin with the question, which is really a controversy of some sort of the <laughs> authorship, namely who, single or plural, was the or were the authors of uh, this first five books of the Bible. And uh, in discussing that, our outline, as it were, We'll really look at uh, the nature of the uh, conflict. Uh, on an academic scale, it is proposed that um, uh, there were more than one author, uh, that uh, that author was not Moses. He may have been a contributor to what some may call 1.0 of this section of Scripture. Um, we will discuss from whence that comes or, or the derivation of that thinking. Uh, we will discuss um, uh, why that came to be uh, and we will discuss uh, what that looks like, that controversy, and then we'll seek to establish a, an appropriate answer to that question based on uh, scriptural evidence within the Torah itself, uh, based on um, external evidence to the Torah, yet within the biblical framework from the New Testament and also from other scriptures within the Old Testament. We'll also look at extra-biblical information if we have time to get there. And then after that, if we have time, 
um, we will discuss um, who this particular individual Moses was and uh, the nature of his habit before his encounter with God and uh, the sections or segments of his life and how God, through his glorious grace, sought to efficaciously bring about change, transformation in this man so that a, a, a rather interesting figure became as such a stalwart historical figure, not only to the Jewish faith, but also to Judeo-Christian faith uh, throughout time. John, would you like to add to that? This is our first program, so um, would, you, would you like to respond? Sure, and I think um, when we think about the Torah, and, we're, and specifically this first program, you know, talk about the authorship, but uh, is how it relates to the Torah and the authorship. Um, we're looking at the Torah as one, one unit, one complete uh, book that we have broken up into five books in our Bible. Um, and the, um, the implications are, are, I think, quite large that if Moses did not author this as Scripture seems to claim, as uh, both Old Testament writers and New Testament writers seem to claim, and then we have a, a very big problem. If we can't trust Scripture uh, with this truth, then how can we trust Scripture with other truths? Um, and I think as we look at uh, the story of the uh, the book of Genesis and uh, on through uh, the book of uh, Deuteronomy, uh, we will see a, a complete picture, a complete story that is uh, uh, developed that actually um, carries on through the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, so the question of authorship does at first may not seem to be quite relevant, but it is relevant because uh, it answers uh, uh, questions of uh, how is Moses uh, able to write, how is he qualified to write, uh, what does he add to the to the dialogue, what does he add to the to the story, and uh, we'll see that uh, it actually flows together and uh, it makes a lot of sense. So uh, we'll we'll look at the other theories that are out there as far as authorship. <laughs> And uh, um, we'll go from there. So, am I understanding that this is a controversial area, CL, as much as Genesis appears to be one of the most attacked uh, books of the Bible? Is is Moses actually attacked uh, equally uh, in that area? Moses is quite revered. Uh, again, I will state, as stated in an earlier interview with you, David, that uh, there are no books in the Bible uh, that have been as attacked as the first 11 chapters of Genesis, because basically they are the substratum for every theme, plot, concept, etc., throughout the framework of Scripture. If one can soundly debunk those 11 chapters, one can debunk the entirety of the, of the Scriptures, period. Uh, there's no need for many of the concepts or things or truths or theological convictions that you see established from Genesis 12 on then. Um, so they are certainly attacked. Well, by implication, then, it carries along with it an understood or essential attack, an inherent attack, if you will, against the, the proposed author um, um, to establish a certain level of illegitimacy, if you will. Now, along with that statement, however, I'd like to qualify that with this statement. And yet, although there is going to be some level of attack that is going to be given toward this author, one must note well that you are hard-pressed to 
find many more revered men in multitudinous religious convictions than Moses. So it's kind of a paradoxical thing, if you will. I mean, and that's even, and that's even, both within Judeo-Christian uh, religion and outside of uh, even even the um, uh, Islam's revere Moses as being a prophet from God, as I understand. Um, and 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 Seal's exactly right that the the foundation of the Bible, in a sense, is uh, the Book of Genesis. Uh, the themes are found there. Uh, the truths are found there. Um, boy, if you can if you can get at the foundation, then you can debunk or discredit the whole Bible. Um, then you don't have to listen to it. So it is of utmost importance that we uh, focus on this. And Moses, of course, as during the whole history of, uh, well, you know, most of the history, history of the church, I can't speak right now, <laughs> history of the church and uh, history of Judaism, Moses is, is the man. He is, he, is, he is revered. And it's not until 17th century, 18th century, where it's challenged. Uh, and so the whole idea that Moses is not the author uh, or the primary author in the sense that the content is mosaic uh, is kind of uh, is kind of new uh, relatively speaking in history so um, uh, so it's essentially we to be established that and and uh, and I think uh, we'll see that uh, as we look at the process of how how the Torah was put together how how the Bible is put together we'll see that uh, it makes sense that that God commands Moses to write certain things down and certain things that are added to that. And uh, later, um, prophets and writers are added to that so that as the Bible is coming together, the process is coming together, uh, that it makes sense that um, uh, that we have the Mosaic authors of the Pentateuch. So. Zio, may I ask you, uh, in reference to that controversy, where does that originally spring from any time period due to the heart of mankind when you're talking about the word of god or when you're talking about god himself therein always lies a controversy as a result of our our hearts uh, the wickedness of our hearts but with specificity to speak to the specific controversy that is under question namely the controversy concerning the authorship of this book let me clearly state that it had not been understated or agreed upon controversy until uh, the 1700s, about 1750 or thereabout. I should I should preface this with a brief history, if you will. I should preface this with a with a brief history. Um, you're dealing with the pre-enlightenment age here historically, and when you're dealing with the pre-enlightenment age, this is thought of in in um, historians' minds as a superstitious age, if you will, an, an age of vulnerability, gullibility. Uh, to be certain, there were great academics, but uh, faith in God was almost understood. If you will, uh, I'll supply it with this language. It was taken for granted, and it was thought that not many intellectuals had really in depthly looked at the evidence or lack thereof due to the control of Catholicism and the Eastern Orthodox Church. They have a very strong hand and sway 
on individuals who understand themselves to be under the mercy or grace of God and understand themselves equally to be always hanging, if you will, over uh, hell. Indeed, one of the great American sermons of uh, some years gone by by Jonathan Edwards was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which it was suggested that although he read from his manuscript without ever peering up at the congregation eyeball to eyeball, uh, they could literally smell sulfur amongst the congregants, and uh, women were known to pass out during that time, and men were want of strength within their knees. And you had such language as, even now it is but a silken spider's web that doth dangle thee over the licking flames of hell. And so it was thought, how does one literally logically perceive this if they give a real intellectual gander at this? Is there any sort of support to it? Also during this framework, um, uh, you have several things occurring. When we walk into the 1800s, you have the Black Plague. Uh, you have a, a, a real show of death, demise, from young to old. And, of course, the age of elders at this time is not as uh, old as we now deem individuals. I mean, the average man is not living past 50 or 60 at this particular point. And so you have a death happening, happening amongst the young, happening amongst women, happening amongst amongst robust men. And uh, also during this time, while there is a, a depression of sorts in the health of men and women and children and death is, is wreaking havoc upon all, you have this superstition and it doesn't seem that God is necessarily uh, liberating them from it. Well, you also have certain great strides being made in the academic world, I mean, and also in medicine, as it were. A penicillin is invented during this time, and that's an answer to the, the plague that is uh, still men's lives. Uh, you also have great academic endeavors. It's in 1859 that Darwin produces um, uh, his uh, dissertation on the origin of the species, the truncated name, if you will, where our listeners will recognize it. And in this, there is an effort to suggest that there is not so much a supernatural source behind uh, the origin of the species. Uh, rather, there seems to be a progressed process that is evolutionary that does not demand a supernatural explanation, it simply demands a naturalistic explanation. Go ahead, John. Oh, I was just going to add is that in, in correspondence with that, you have um, the rejection of things uh, supernatural. Uh, if you can explain things naturally, then that's how they happen. And, uh, and of course, everything is then put to the test. And I think during it's during uh, a little bit after the time of Darwin that uh, what is called what we call the documentary hypothesis came out uh, by Julius Wellhausen, if you're German, or Wellhausen if you're American, <laughs> and he proposed that uh, that uh, the Book of Genesis uh, and the Pentateuch rather uh, had different sources that did not come from Moses but came after Moses, and part of his reasoning, uh, he was affected by uh, um, by Darwin. Part of his reasoning was that uh, they didn't believe that um, that the religious culture of Moses's time could have been well developed. They believed that if evolution was was correct, as Darwin proposed, then perhaps religious evolution was correct. That is, that at the time of Moses, uh, they they would have had a primitive religion, a primitive way of worship, and so they would have rejected. Uh, many of the things we found in the, uh, the Pentateuch of how uh, rituals were done and sacrifices were done as being 
oh, that's too late after Moses because during Moses' time, it must have been much, much more primitive. Uh, the other thing that Wellhausen uh, uh, believed was that, um, that there wasn't writing at the time. And so Moses couldn't have written these things down because there wasn't writing at the time. Well, uh, incidentally, um, archaeology, even at the time of Wellhausen, shown that writing was well established way before Moses. Uh, why he didn't use that information, I don't know. But, but those, are two, those are two of the foundation uh, principles, one or three. One was uh, anti-supernaturalism. Two was uh, the evolutionary process of religion. And three was uh, writing. And so those are sort of the pillars on which this uh, rejection of mosaic authorship uh, stands on. And you have a question. <laughs> Did I interrupt you? No, no, that's... You? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I would like to, and I don't want to break the flow. And we can edit this however you want. But I'd just like to go back to the period of the 1700s. And is it indeed... Or would it be accurate to say that the catalyst to that period, to the, the that period and the way that it, it was affected, were from individuals uh, like Luther and Calvin? Well, of course, we're going to place Luther in the 1500s uh, appropriately. Um, uh, so he's going to be earlier. Uh, but this is a rejection of um, um, all theological concepts of a conservative nature basically because it is assumed that they're uh, that they are working with a presumptive idea namely that there is a god that these works are completely supernatural and i want to be very clearly that the antithesis of that is an anti-supernatural concept uh, let me place that phraseology in very simple language. On one side, there is this conviction over the years that sees God as the source, and if God in all of his power is the source, then of course nothing is uh, in, impossible for him. Well, the other side says, but wait, we see certain patterns, or we see certain things that are outside of patterns, and, and which form a pattern themselves, which may actually suggest that everything does not uh, have its answer at the source of God, nor does everything necessitate God. And that's going to be huge because society at a, as a large is going to take uh, a big turn. I mean, our, our logistic system and, and literature is going to take a turn. Our academic system is going to take a turn. Our human system, our anthropological societal convictions uh, as it pertains to how we deal with one another uh, is going to take a turn at that time. So several things are going to take a time, a turn. However, a, a great deal of critical thinking, and, and that's not a negative, but a great deal of critical thinking is going to um, be involved now. You're going to have um, historical criticism. You're going to have literary criticism. You're going to have uh, form criticism, redaction criticism, rhetorical criticism, canonical criticism. You're going to have uh, very many of these that are going to be um, um, uh, begun at the stage. In fact, the science of archaeology is really going to be birthed during the 1800s, uh, in order to respond to claims and, and calls or cries to look at the text critically. And here's the idea. If one looks at it critically, uh, it may be that it's not God's fingerprint on it, or at least you may have some of God on it, mostly man on it. And I think that's, that's the, the biggest distinction is, is how they approach the scripture, whereas, you know, we as evangelicals do approach the scripture um, with the belief that it is inspired. 
that it is uh, God uh, as the primary author using human beings as the secondary author that's inspired. Um, what was going on at this time is now they're beginning to approach the scripture with the assumption that it's not inspired, that it's man-made. And so there's a completely, de- they've already decided beforehand that it's man-made. And so even though they're being critical, <laughs> they're critically rejecting many of the supernatural claims of the scripture or the miracles that were there in, in the scripture. So uh, you have two different approaches of how they want to read it. Um, and it's, at, it's uh, at this time that the source criticism, which, which Wellhausen was um, bringing up, uh, began to flourish. Uh, and the other criticisms would develop as well. Unfortunately, a lot of the scholars didn't, um, as far as I understand, incorporate these other criticisms like literary criticism and form criticism, uh, criticism into their analysis of the scripture. And uh, so anyway, this is what's going on at, at, uh, at this time. It, it, to be certain, I, I, I want to, in Julius Wilhausen's defense, it, this is not birth out of a vacuum, if you will. He's looking within the text, and he's trying to make sense of the text, if you will, uh, with a critical eye. Uh, and as he's doing so, he sees... Uh, six things I'll I'll give you. He sees, first of all, in the Torah that Moses is spoken of, oftentimes in the third person. He also sees that the Torah in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 34, includes the obituary of Moses. Now, how many men, of course, write their own obituary? Um, He also sees that uh, it includes a list of the names of Edomite kings who lived after Moses' death. Uh, It seems in his thinking that some redactor has gone back to to, uh, put more familiar names to a more contemporary audience that seems to be around the 10th or 9th uh, centuries or so and is probably later than Moses uh, lived uh, in certainty. Um, He also sees that the text notes that the Canaanites were in the land and he would argue that this reflects a time of authorship long after Mosaic authorship. He would also suggest that uh, Deuteronomy reports that Moses spoke across the Jordan in Deuteronomy 1.1. And it would be argued that this reflects authorship in Israel, uh, with the author referring to Moses' location in Moab as being across the Jordan. And finally, uh, that the Torah reports that Moses was a very humble man or a very meek man. And indeed, the text argues that he was the most meek man who ever lived. And he struggles to uh, think that uh, a man who was really that meek would actually say that of himself in the text. We should uh, clearly um, uh, place importance on the the period around the 1700s, and I think that we have uh, defined that. Uh, m- moving on, what is the evidence for Moses' authorship precisely? Well, well <laughs> I was going to uh, respond to something what you had said, but see, I'll, um, I don't think we've really clearly defined. The JDP. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, Theory. Um, there's um, – I, I want to define that first because because that is the theory. It's called the documentary hypothesis or it's known as the JEDP theory. And that is the primary um, uh, argument that has been used by scholars over the years. So it is, it is in one corner – J.E.D.P. on the other corner, Moses. <laughs> so uh, he listed, uh, uh, C.L. listed some of the ar- arguments for it. Let's define what it was, first of all, so we're clear. Um, and it didn't really start with Wellhausen, but he's the one who actually uh, 
communicated and, and the way we understand now. The idea was that behind uh, the, the Pentateuch were four main sources. Um, one source was called the J document or the Yahweh's document. Uh, it was perhaps written in the 9th century BC by uh, a Judean author. And during in this section, or in the section that, that includes the J document, the name that is used for God is Yahweh, the sacred name, okay, or Jehovah, okay? Uh, and it has different st various style. Uh, talks about the patriarchal faith and uh, anthropomorphisms that are there. The second document is called the Eloist document, and the primary name that is used for God there is Elohim, okay? So what Wellhausen, and just to interrupt here, what Wellhausen did and others before him saw, for example, in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, you have the primary name that is used for God is Elohim. In Genesis 2, the primary name that's used for God is Yahweh Elohim. You have the name Yahweh in Purdue. So the assumption was this must have come from two different sources. Okay? Uh, so then you had a third document called the, 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 the D document, which is the Deuter Deuteronomic source. And this was perhaps written in the 7th century B.C. during the time of Josiah. And they contain a different style than the J and the E theory uh, uh, document. And then finally you had what is called the P source, which was the priestly source, which included a lot of the laws and, and rituals. And they are thinking that this was written after the exile, which is probably uh, four to 500 B.C. So the theory was, was that a lot of what you've, you see was put together after Moses, that Moses didn't write of a lot of this stuff, that some editor, uh, perhaps a scribe like Ezra or somebody else. Nehemiah. Nehemiah put it together after the exile of, uh, or after coming back from the exile uh, in five, uh, 538 to 520 or so BC. So the, the point is, is that what, what C.L. was alluding to was there are sections in, for, in the book of, uh, of Genesis to uh, Deuteronomy that could not have been written by Moses. Moses could not have written his own death. He Moses could not written or probably did not write that he was humble. The assumption is if he couldn't write that, then he, then he must not have written the rest of it. Okay, uh, what conservatives hold to is that uh, it is possible for for Moses to write the Pentateuch and be the primary uh, source of that. In other words, he writes uh, the majority of the book. And after his death, somebody comes in and either updates certain names. There are certain cities that are, have been updated their names, and puts in uh, final touches on on the story. And that's okay. We don't we don't we don't have a problem with that. But what the other side holds to is that he couldn't have written any of it. And there's great problems with that. And uh, we'll get into that in a second. So, but. Um, so basically, they would argue that this section has parallels, it has doublets or duplicates, it has other works mentioned in the Old Testament, such as the wars of Yahweh and the book of Jasher, um, wars of Yahweh mentioned in Numbers 21 and Joshua, uh, and Jasher mentioned in Joshua 10. Uh, there's differences between the Hebrew and Greek versions, of course, the Septuagint and, the, and what we normally employ, the Masoretic text. 
differences in various laws and differences in the use of the divine names. Um, uh, but there are also weaknesses to this theory, and I want to make sure that we point those out, such as our increase in knowledge. Listen, uh, uh, to quote uh, one particular OT, our Old Testament scholar, uh, Dr. Wegner, uh, at one time it was thought that the Israelites were too primitive in the 15th century BCE to have written the Pentateuch. However, writing is known to have existed about 3000 BCE in Egypt and Mesopotamia. I would actually go further that and say we have record of writing in Asia, specifically China, that dates back to 4500 BCE. The the code of uh, Hammurabi uh, that dates to like um, 2000 or so BC was written obviously before Moses. Um, the the whole the whole thing with um, with Wellhausen looking at the it's, for example Genesis and seeing two different names and thinking okay those must be two different sources. Later on, they find out that it was a common practice to use different names for their gods. That among the ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, they were not restricted to calling their god by one name. <laughs> they can call them two different names. And perhaps the reason for the difference in names not had to do with different sources, but perhaps different functions. For example, in Genesis 1, you have Elohim. Elohim uh, displays or communicates the majesty of God, the greatness of God. So you have in Genesis 1 this Elohim who's creating the universe out of nothing, who's creating the massive uh, forms and stars and, and planets out of, out of just the spoken word. It displays his greatness. Now you get to chapter 2 and you have Yahweh Elohim, and Yahweh is the name for God, uh, the covenant-keeping God. So in one sense... Moses is speaking to Israelites, and he's saying, the same God who created the universe, who is majestic, who is larger than life, who is uh, powerful, is the same God with whom we have a relationship with. So that when when they're going to go into the promised land and they're confronted with Canaanite religions and Canaanite gods, uh, he seemed to be saying to the Israelites, our God is stronger than the other gods. So the point is, is that what was thought to be different sources as why, is there, why there's different names has a better explanation that perhaps there's different functions to those names, that they use names for different functions. Absolutely. And as it pertains to the uh, evolutionary developments of biblical texts, um, listen, there is not a clear development in the biblical text from primitive to more developed forms, and thus the evolutionary development of texts is not as clear as some had once thought. Also, concerning determining sources, the criteria uh, for determining sources has been strongly questioned. The usage of divine names is better explained by their meaning than by their sources. So uh, that's just to rehearse a few, and, and, and again, a very few, of the weaknesses that attend the documentary hypothesis theory. Now, let me tell why that's important, because it could almost sound like... Um, we're simply being academics, and we promised that we wouldn't do that. Uh, I was having a conversation with a uh, young lady from university who was not in the university setting. Uh, she did not know my background. I was not aware of her background, uh, but uh, she was aware that I was a Christian and had such a conviction. 
as such, she immediately brought onslaught against me and and uh, professed that Christian conviction is rather dumb and uh, uninformed, unintelligent, if you will, and to evince her uh, argument, to establish it in some level of firmness. Um, uh, this was the punch that she had pulled from a secular, and by secular I mean a well-established, well-informed, fine, reputable university that is is not Christian in its classes or in its conviction or anything of that nature. And uh, her one punch uh, to uh, disillusion me as a believer was the JEDP hypothesis or the documentary hypothesis. Uh, when she found as a common Christian that I could answer to that, why <clears throat> then we suddenly discovered that there was something behind that theory that the professor had handed her in a brief um, um, in a brief discussion in class. Literally, her concept was she did not understand um, uh, why God doesn't exhibit his all-powerfulness in rescuing the people in her lives, in her life who have died or, or who have had issues of controversial nature or, or the such. And so literally, uh, it was an area that she had been given on an academic scale, but she was not given the full orbed picture. She was not given the full concept surrounding it. So my concept is that there may be those that are listening to us who have students in university or, or children in university or ha who have youngsters or who have um, uh, academic professors even in a theological um, uh, arena uh, who have brought up these issues. I would suggest that more study is done uh, by the hearers uh, in order to hear the fuller story because what it does it is in it what it does or what it accomplishes is it immediately disillusions them with faith and then they reject looking further behind that to note that there is good evidence that supports uh, the the veracity or the truthfulness of scripture and I just have to say because of the, the sake of time we you know we don't have time to go through every argument back and forth uh, but we do have the blog that I'm sure people will can communicate with us that we can interact in a more detailed way because we have <laughs> there's a lot more that we're not telling you that's that's there um, so um, anyway can I can I just perhaps offer this as a segue into who Moses was mm -hmm. the man himself that may help us to to elaborate and and, and possibly answer, uh, give some answers <coughs> to this controversy or clear up this controversy. Uh, absolutely. Um, l let me segue in this way um, that, first of all, as it pertains to Moses, he is or he was the individual who, upon a careful reading of the Pentateuch, is offered internally as the viable the proper author of this work. Uh, that's true and stated in Exodus 17.14 and Exodus 24.4, uh, chapter 32, verse 27, Numbers 33, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 31, uh, verse 19. He is proposed, he is offered to the reader as the legitimate author of this work. Um, again, the unity and content, uh, the style, the character of the words indicate that Genesis through Deuteronomy uh, are documents pinned by a single author. You know, what's also interesting is that um, the the customs that are mentioned in Genesis to, all the way through Deuteronomy uh, are could not have been written as accurately 
by somebody who lived after the exile, perhaps in the 500 BC. Um, uh, for example, you have the recording of, of um, the um, birthrights and, and the marriage, um, um, slave ownership and, and female slaves, and, and uh, you have the presentation of, um, of, of uh, the uh, Book of De- Deuteronomy, in fact, that is written. The Book of Deuteronomy is written in the style uh, that dates near the time of Moses. It is actually, it's actually a, a legal document. It is uh, fashioned at, after what is called the Hittite Suzerain Vassal Treaty, whereas the Suzerain, the conquering nation, makes an agreement with the nation they just conquered and say, we will have this relationship with you. We will uh, provide clean water and roads and health care or something in exchange for your taxes and for your loyalty. And if you obey, we will protect you if somebody attacks you. And if you disobey, then we will punish you. Well, the whole framework of the book of Deuteronomy is exactly that. God the suzerain enters into relationship with the people of, of Israel. And the style, the, the way it's structured is fashioned after this, uh, uh, this, uh, this treaty that dates to around the time of Moses. So there, there are certain things that a post-exilic writer could not have done uh, accurately, uh, nor would he have, I don't think, attempted so. Uh, but Moses, as, as, as a person, is well qualified to do these things. Here's Moses, who is, uh, of course, born in Egypt. He's raised um, in Pharaoh's household. Um, he is raised in uh, the, he's educated by the Egyptians. He's educated in their, you know, in their religion and their cultural practices and whatnot. He would have a top-notch uh, understanding of the, the religions around uh, the other countries as well. He also would have uh, have understanding of his own religion, so um, he's prepared that. Way. He's also prepared in the sense that uh, when he, um, um, well, he tries to rescue his people, <laughs> but then God has another phase in his life where he makes him a shepherd and uh, learns how to depend and trust on God uh, in that. And so, uh, CL, if you want to carry on, just rest one. It's really hard, David, because here's the concept, um, and, and for our listeners, Moses is not born in a wonderful, warm climate. Uh, he's born in a climate of great difficulty. Um, he's born into a family that belongs to a tribe, that belongs to a nation that have been in slavery for 400 years. Uh, they will be released at 430 years due to prophecy given by God to Abraham. But, I mean, listen, if you've been in slavery for 100 years, you may have hope in God. If you've been in slavery for 200 and there was a promise, I'll get you out, you may have hope in God. But can you clearly see how that would wane after three, 400 years and no deliverance? And you walked in as a privileged people over in the land of Goshen as shepherds and nomads. And now you've been reduced to very low-level slaves. And uh, you are steadily increasing. But hear this very well. In this particular section where you're increasing, um, uh, the, the Egyptians are upset. And now I'm speaking about the native Egyptians because of the um, an earlier nomadic people that had overthrown the land, conquered the land 
land while your forefather Joseph was there and uh, did quite well. But now upon reconquering the land, uh, you are very similar to those nomads and you're very similar to those uh, uh, shepherd people and your numbers are steadily increasing and you could overthrow our nation and could overthrow our sovereignty. And so we're not going to take a risk on you. So what are we going to do? We're going to demean you. We're going to debase you. We're going to crush you internally, mentally, psychologically. We're going to crush you physiologically so that when you're walking around, Moses is probably not growing up around a lot of men who have their backs straight. Their souls are probably inwardly pressed and, 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 and submitted to death, looking forward to it as a relief and a release. So although there is a, a large number of, of Hebrews, they are Hebrew slaves in the strictest sense. And infanticide is going on. I mean, Moses goes from his mother's arms to barely nursing on her breast to being placed in a basket on the River Nile that has crocodiles and the such in the water. This is hardly a safe haven for a young lad who's going to be born. And, and just <laughs> and we're putting together the picture of Moses because you know here's Moses who is of course as he grows up and he and he knows that he's Hebrew. He sees the plight of his brothers and sisters, and he wants to do something about it. And, of course, you know, he ends up killing an Egyptian and it ends up running away. Moses doesn't strike us as the character of somebody who wants to run for office. He's not the, the, the person who, who really wants to <laughs> go do things in that sense. Yes, he, he fell there, but then God commissions him, and he is very reluctant in, reluctant in many ways. Um, he knows, first of all, his weaknesses. He knows what he's done. Uh, he knows who he is. He knows that people are after him. Yet God decides to send him anyway. When they, when he does come to uh, to Egypt, uh, his, his people don't greet him with a, a a party and say, "Yes, Moses, we will come and follow you." Uh, they don't. They don't accept him either. Um, as he's leading the people uh, out of Egypt, and when he finally convinces the people uh, that God has sent him, and he's in the land wandering uh, with the people and traveling. Uh, they're grumbling. They don't like what their conditions. They want to go back to Egypt and eat the the leeks and onions and whatnot and be well fed. The, the point is, is that Moses, as he he is, he's an author here of the Pentateuch, only because God told him to write certain things, only because God initiated this in Moses' life, not because Moses decided to sit down and write the scripture. God, in various uh, forms and ways, commands Moses to write down, for example, law. And, and write this book and add uh, the, the various parts of the law to uh, the Ark of Covenant. So my point is that Moses is a humble man who, uh, who is very reluctant, yet God still uses him and has Moses record various things along the way uh, for their benefit. Yeah, I would go beyond humble and say humiliated, but I'll qualify that later. Go ahead, David. Can I ask you, CL? Um, he was clearly an educated man. He had the benefits of a fine education. And we see that um, a lot of the writing is in the third party. Uh, how, how does that work, given that he was uh, brought up by the, the pharaohs? Uh, who would he solicit? Who, who would he work with uh, to, to, to create that part of the text or is that something that, that did in fact come later? 
if, if I understand your question correctly, first of all, if you compare other stylistic literature of a comparative nature of that particular period of time, um, Moses alone is not uh, an individual who is singularly responsible for writing uh, concerning himself in the third person. I want to be very clear that the focal point of this section of literature is not Moses, it is God, it is the nation, and Moses sees himself as part and parcel thereof. Uh, one might in similitude and uh, in comparison look over in the Gospel of John in the New Testament, and when one compares the Gospel of John, uh, John also writes of himself in the third person. So this is not not altogether um, different on a literary scale uh, than what is normal of well-educated, fine authors who are humble in nature uh, from the earliest period of history to the later sections of history, even into the first century, and even in some of our literature today. So, uh, therefore, it's important not to look at the the style or the or the necessarily the quality of the work but to look at the strength and the power behind the work. Uh, no, I certainly wouldn't. I would, I would say the complete opposite of that. I think that if we are looking at something that is structured by God, that we can look at it in all facets and it can stand the test of time. I would not suggest turn off the mind so that one becomes blind, him or herself, uh, to uh, the, the um, textual quality, the linguistic, grammatical, historical uh, contextual, etc. Um, uh, no, indeed, turn on your mind. And I think therein will be found a marvelous quality. I mean, there are styles of literary writing that they employ that we no longer employ. I mean, you're talking about chiastic structure. Uh, you're talking about parallelism, uh, couplets, hendieties. I mean, you have several ways in which they wrote that we are seeking today to still discover. Just, just on that note, one of the things that... Uh Wellhausen and others were not familiar with at the time was the use of various literary conventions like repeating a story, telling a story two times uh, with slight differences uh, and, and the use of chiasms and other literary structures that we're familiar with uh, after the fact that, um, that they would have used and would have been brilliantly put together. I, I would probably say this, David, and this is, this is why I say this so strongly because um, um, he had an extraordinary education. Remember, <coughs> Egypt has always been um, um, an extraordinary uh, locale as it pertains to academia. Indeed, at one time in Alexandria, they had the uh, largest and best and well-known library, most well-known library in the world in Alexandria, Egypt, and later on it was destroyed by fire, and this is years later. But they've always been an academic erudite people, if you will. Um, uh, so he was well-informed, as well as, uh, listen, to date, I've never still come in contact with someone who is of Jewish background who is not exceptionally mentally prowessed. Uh, they, they have been gifted by God in so many areas uh, as it pertains to jewelry makers, as it pertains to um, the music industry, the movie industry, the radio industry, to sum it up, the media ministry. Uh, I'm not sure that I want to say that one of their forefathers was mentally incapable. In fact, I think that having been 
Jewish, having been well studied and prepared from his parents' perspective. I mean, he was raised um, uh, on his mother's knee and sucked from her breast for a few years, and I'm sure that uh, uh, she informed him of the faith at that particular point. Uh, I think I have reasons to believe that. Also, in Egypt, uh, he's not shortcoming in his educational um, uh, understanding. He was probably going to be schooled in order to become a contender, at least, uh, for the throne. I, I think what's important is is that the fact that he is raised with Egyptian education is going to prepare him for when he does write, uh, for example, in Genesis, he is going to, well, in one sense, he's going to be familiar with the other creation accounts, with the other uh, stories of the flood, with other customs, the other beliefs, and he's going to come against those beliefs in his in the writing of the scripture, where like you have in uh, the book of Genesis, uh, the creation story that shows that there's one God who created the heavens and the earth, not many gods. And so Moses, uh, as part of being raised in Egypt, uh, is understanding with the, 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 the culture, the literary understanding, and the religious uh, understanding of the, of, of the world. And in that framework, he would have been well qualified to combat or to uh, discuss uh, the, their religion versus the other religions and showing how, um, how, um, how the Jewish religion, how the Hebrew religion would, uh, uh, would uh, be supreme. Um, so this would have prepared him. But as far as, as far as now, you know, we know the, his history, but as far as actual, um, is Moses the actual author? Well, you know, <laughs> you have both Old Testament and New Testament attribute the Pentateuch to Moses. Uh, you have throughout the various portions of the Old Testament, you have God commanding Moses to write a book uh, and uh, to write the book of the law, the book of the covenant, whether it's on Mount Sinai when he receives the Ten Commandments uh, or whether it's on the plains uh, of, of Moab where before the children of Israel are going to enter in where Moses gives actually three sermons. The book of Deuteronomy is basically three sermons where he's preparing the second generation to enter into the promised land. Um, those are told, those are, uh, those are, um, Moses is taught to, be, to record those. Uh, Joshua, in fact, um, is told to uh, record the book of Moses and to, to write and to read the book of Moses. Um, so you have a lot of uh, things in the Old Testament, but the New Testament especially, where you have the apostles themselves, where you have Jesus himself attribute Genesis to, uh, to Deuteronomy, to, to Moses. That's an important point. It's Let huge. me just park there because <laughs> <laughs> if Jesus is God... And he says it. You can probably believe it. Now, Jesus had no problem in correcting people who had wrong convictions. Um, uh, Moses said that we should uh, uh, grant a bill of divorce. Uh, and Jesus says, listen, from the beginning it was not so in corrective disciplinary language and instructive language. Uh, so he has no problem correcting. He can say... Peter, you're blessed, uh, Matthew 16, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. And shortly thereafter, when Peter goes too far, and it's clearly not the Father speaking, you can say, get thee behind me, Satan, for you're not sharing the agenda of God at this particular point. Uh, so he had no problem with correcting. I I'm, 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 I'm pressed 
to believe that God in the flesh was confused on the proper author of the book. And I'm sure that he's not just accommodating or being nice. It seems that it was his conviction indeed that Moses was the author, as it was Josephus' conviction, as it was Philo's conviction, as it was Rashi, a a rabbi from the 13th century's conviction, as it was the Council of Yamna's conviction, as it was the conviction of many authors as we go on, both secular, biblical New Testament, biblical Old Testament, it seems that that was their conviction. Let me be clear again and say that the life of Moses fits into three time periods of 40 years each. And it's during those first 40 years that he really is humbled and humiliated because this guy is looking at his people suffer and he above them all has the power, if any, to do anything uh, but just sit there and watch it. And indeed, uh, he does seek to do something about it. And when he seeks to do something about it, uh, the people reject him grossly. Uh, He has to run. And and you have to understand, there's no running like running from the potential contending of Uh, for the throne. Had he run from the slave camp, that would have been a different post to have run from. But to have been gifted and graced by God, to have the favored seat within the house of Pharaoh, and then have to run from there out into the wilderness, and to spend 40 years of your life getting the dream out of your head, uh, having it pulled out of your mind and saying, no, no, just, just forget about that. Just forget about that. And they've been there all these years, and it's quite evident that they're going to die there. And then to suddenly have God say, Moses. I, I'm not sure that we can appreciate that, you know, or as the movie, I am the God of Yochaved. You know, That's or, pretty good. Thank you. you know, Moses. Uh, <laughs> to hear that, uh, if I'm Moses, I'm, I'm shaking my head. I'm digging in my ears. I'm saying, okay, great God, choose anybody else. But I tried that once for you, and you didn't help me and support me as I thought you would. And for God to send him back with miraculous powers and for the people to say, that's nice. Are you sure it was God? Yes. What's his name? To reveal the name, I will be who I'll be. And and yet it comes with a penalty. Does it ever? Mm. Does it ever? to, To stand before the people of God, I love this because he stands before the people. God does these miraculous events. And and then they're liberated from Egypt and Moses has to spend the next 40 years with these people in the wilderness and I love the exchange I mean this really sums it up Uh, God they're your people God no Moses they're your people no God really they're your people and then (laughs) Moses labors with these folks and upon laboring with these folks he finds out that the humility that he learned those first 40 years really came into play because, again, as you said, he learned how to, instead of combating the people, lie down on his face and let God become his defender. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in that process, my struggle with that is, God, this guy starts off and he's a heated sort. He has a fiery temper. And then you, you chastise him, you, you, you simmer that temperature down so that it goes from being fire to steam 
And, and finally, Moses learns how to control himself, and you control him. And I'm sitting here looking, and I'm saying, God, what kind of person can you use to do great things? What about my days when I'm heated? Or what about my days when I'm not the best that I can be or want to be or care to be or should be? Am I still useful? Um, you know, David, I'll sum it up since I know that we have to, have to conclude. I have certain cups in the house, but very rarely do I use the finest china on every day. You know, we just broke out the uh, the Christmas mugs for Christmas time coffee. So those are the rare <laughs> occasions, <laughs> yes, aren't yes. they? I forgot we didn't have them, but you know. But the cups of preference in most houses are the stained cups. And indeed, the Queen of England for years drove the same automobile that she preferred. And I think in doing that, we express something of the character of God. when the cup has a stain, when the dish has a a a, a blemish. Gracefully, he does not do throw us away and dismiss us. He finds upon that dish some way to prepare such a meal of our lives that it becomes that presentable meal that nourishes the family most of the days of the year. And on occasion, we find a special holiday platter that, that shines and that brings forth glitter and glamour. And yet, what does the children, what do the children eat for a most off? What did the parents nourish themselves from? They nourish themselves from the common dishes. And so here's my statement of encouragement to someone who may be listening. Do you have a blemish? Do you have a background that's most regrettable? Well, here's the concept. If God can use Moses, he can use you, and he can prepare a dish for your family, for your husband, your wife, for your children, for the world, for your social circle that may, in fact, change the lives of generations to come. John Cole, C.O. Mitchell, thank you so much uh, for being here today and beginning this wonderful long-term series. It was uh, delightful. Thank, thank you. Thank you, David. And to our listeners, uh, we do hope that you have enjoyed this first of many programs uh, on the Torah, and we will look forward to seeing you again next week at the same time. And meanwhile, I'm sure that these gentlemen will be extremely happy to respond uh, to any comments or feedback that you have on our blog at the official website. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by voice america talk radio network its staff and management